0: Hello there, listeners. Thank you for joining me. In a moment, you're going to follow me down the rabbit hole as we dive into the history, geography, and makeup of the state called Arizona. It's a story full of cowboys and Native Americans, outlaws and lawmen, soldiers and politicians, miners and farmers, Spanish priests and Mormon pioneers, even mammoths and aliens. But before we get started, let me introduce you to me, your guide for this journey. My name is David Rickhausen, I'm a former journalist, a history buff, and an Arizona native. I first had the idea to tell the sweeping story of the nation's 48th state more than whew, two and a half years ago after listening to one too many other history podcasts. I somehow got it into my head that I wanted to do something similar and brainstorm for a topic I could possibly talk about with some degree of authority. A year of dithering, months of research, And weeks of feverish preparation later, here we are. But the way I want to tell the story of the Grand Canyon State will not be strictly chronological, but topical as well. That is to say that episodes will move us in discrete units down the timeline, but sometimes we'll stop to look at the people, movements, or common themes from any given era. Because while most of this I believe is inherently fascinating, it's in the individual stories that history really comes alive. And telling those stories seems to be the best use of both our times than a strict annual ap urta candita style of narrating. But on the subject of how this podcast will proceed, I will say that the plan is for this first episode to come out on or around Statehood Day, February 14th, 2020. Following that, the next episode will hit the evening of Sunday, February 16th. From then, the plan is to have episodes released weekly on Sunday evenings. Obviously, circumstances might change things in the future but at least that is the plan for now. Finally, I will note that the podcast website is live at azhistorypodcast.com, and you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter, at azhistorypod. Still with me? Great. Then let me say, welcome to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 1. Where are we? Don't let the name of this episode fool you, We're not going to spend today obsessing over longitude and latitude or our position on a globe, mainly because I'm fairly certain anyone out there listening to this can already point us out on a map. Rather, I want to talk about the name Arizona, because that name evokes something in all of us. Maybe it's the image of home for some of us, including myself. The Grand Canyon, dry deserts, unbearable heat, outlaws and gunfights at high noon, sprawling urban development in Phoenix and Tucson, rattlesnakes and cactus, or even from the eponymous children's book, Gila monsters meeting us at the airport. So it's a name with some meaning we've come to associate with it. But what about the first people to use that name? Why did they end up calling this bit of dirt and rock we inhabit Arizona? Because the truth is, many of our state names don't make much sense at first blush. I mean, some do. I'm looking at you, Washington, New York, New Hampshire. Others reflect with a bit of research the English nature of our first settlers. Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, etc. Some are obviously of Spanish origin, Colorado, and Florida. While still others are named for various Native American tribes. Illinois, Utah, the Dakotas, etc. But honestly, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what the heck is a Connecticut? I should add here that some googling tells us that Connecticut comes from the river of the same name, itself derived from an Algonquin term for at or beside the Long Tidal River. But what about Arizona? Unfortunately, the name is a little harder to pin down than Connecticut, but that's why we're all here, right? So let's dive in. The first known, reliable reference to a place called Arizona is in a series of letters from 1736. Like so much of Arizona's history, the name comes to prominence due to the Spanish, Mexico, and the undying search for riches. At that time, a group of Spanish settlers were living in what is today the Mexican state of Sonora in a place called Nuestra Señor de la Limpia Concepción del Agua Caliente. Agua Caliente to you and me about 10 miles southwest of the current U.S.-Mexico border at Nogales. About 20 miles to the northeast were the missions of Guavavi and Swampka in the Santa Cruz and San Luis Valleys of present-day Arizona. In October of 1736, in a hill between these two regions, a Pascua Yaqui man named Antonio Ceramea discovered bolas, or chunks, of nearly pure silver lying exposed on the ground. Of course, finding precious metals is a hard thing to keep to yourself, especially if you want to spend it. Those living close by begin to swoop in and scoop up what silver was on the ground or buried just beneath it without making any claims. It got even harder after a man named José Firmin de Alamazon found a slab, or plancha, of silver in the area that weighed over a hundred arrobas, or roughly one and a quarter tons. This slab was less than a foot from the surface, and had some impurities, but, importantly to our story moving forward, was nearly pure silver. Pieces of the slab were chipped off and eventually used to pay for supplies at a ranch in the San Luis Valley, which, predictably, set off a greater rush of people all hoping to strike it rich. Of course, all this commotion eventually attracted the attention of government officials, namely Juan Bautista de Anza the father of the more famous de Anza, who would one day march from Tubac to San Francisco. We'll get there, I promise. Anza was serving as Justicia Mayor, or Chief Justice of Sonora. He was holding court about 90 miles away, and was petitioned by his deputy justice, Bernardo de Urrea, to intervene and help sort out who had rights to mine what. And with good reason. According to the account of a merchant who brought goods from 100 miles away to sell to the would-be miners... More than 400 people were already on the spot trying to make it rich by the time Anza made it there on November 20th, not two months since the discovery had occurred. Men appeared to be mining virtually right on top of each other, including within feet of where Sierra Mea had found the original chunks. Even before arriving on scene, Anza, as the representative of the Spanish government, ordered a general embargo on the silver, having it impounded and guards placed in the area to keep prospectors out. Because, in fine bureaucratic fashion, Anza was worried about the government's take. If this was an ancient hidden buried treasure or an illegal smelting operation, half to all that silver technically belonged to the crown. And Anza had reason to believe it was not a natural deposit. Chunks and a huge flat slab of pure silver just lying below the surface didn't sound like a natural vein at all. But if it was, then all those miners had to apply for valid claims and Sierra as the original discoverer, needed his rights protected. Even then, the miners had to make sure to set aside 20% of their fines for the Spanish crown, what was known as the Royal Fifth. After arriving, Anza also gave the place its name, calling it San Antonio de Padua, after his patron saint. Critically for us, though, after a week on scene, Anza moved 12 miles south to stay with his deputy justice, Urrea, near Agua Caliente. Urrea, we are told, was living at El Puesto, or the place called Arizona. Anza would stay here between November 28th and December 3rd, 1736, writing at least 16 legal documents, dispatches to lieutenants to confiscate any silver, inquests about the discovery, that sort of thing, copies of which were then sent with an aide to Mexico City. All these were dated and signed Arizona by Anza. Of course, you can't kick people out of a silver mine, impound their loot, and expect them to go along with it. Requests to lift the impound began immediately. Complaints against Anza were filed and arguments also continued in Mexico City about the silver's origin. So much so that Anza was ordered in June of 1737 to return to San Antonio and sort it out once and for all. By August, uh, 10 months after the initial discovery, he had returned to the area, confirmed it was a natural vein of silver, and lifted the embargo. Everyone got their silver back, minus the 20% they owed the king, of course. Sierra Mea was granted a claim, and Almazón was paid to have 300 pounds of his slap taken to Mexico City for further study. But complaints concerning Anza and the silver's discovery would continue for more than a decade, with a new investigation being opened in 1743, despite Anza having been killed by Apaches in 1740. In these later official documents, the place where the vein had been found was already being conflated with where Anza had stayed while writing his official dispatches. So the cerro, or hill, of San Antonio de Padua became the Cerro de San Antonio de Arizona, and later simply El Cerro de la Arizona. Now, two things about this story. First off, you might have noticed we came all this way, and now know that there was a place in Mexico called Arizona in 1736 but still have no idea where the name came from and how it came to apply to a U.S. state. But hold on, we're getting to that. Second, this version of events is based on research done and published by Donald Garrett in a paper giving his own theory on the origin of the word Arizona. We'll also touch on that in just a second. However, it's the fullest account I can find, with others simply taking it as gospel that there was a full-on mining operation in a place called Arizona that had mounds of silver. But while this is the fullest account, keep in mind that it is just one version. Finding and exploring the origin of Arizona has been a subject of numerous historians over the years, with a few theories, some more plausible than others, rising to the top. In his 1916 three-volume history of Arizona, Colonel James H. McClintock devotes the first chapter of his work to this question and covers most of the prevailing schools of thought. The first is that the word is a combination of the Spanish arida, meaning arid or dry, and zona, meaning zone. What could be a more appropriate name for a place in the middle of the Sonoran Desert than dry zone? Now, I should note that I remember having conversations in grade school about what Arizona meant, and this is the explanation that we told each other. It's simple, logical, and sounds right to a bunch of fourth graders. That is, of course, until you take your first Spanish class in junior high, and you realize that the law of that language's grammar says it should be zona arida, and not arida zona. So I think we can safely ignore that one. Other random theories are that it came from the Spanish word for nose, nariz, and that the territory was originally called narizona, literally large nose woman, due to, and I kid you not, the shape of the Gadsden purchase on a map. Another is that it's from the Aztec word Arizuma, meaning either silver country or rocky country. Never mind that there is no provable connection between the Aztecs and a silver mine discovered hundreds of years after the Spanish invasion. Over the years, most historians have settled on the name coming from the language of the Papago or Pima, today known as the Tohono or Acomel Odom tribes. The original place, they claim, was called Arizonac, with a C at the end, later dropped by the Spanish. This, they say, came from the words Arizonac, or Alishonac, or Alishodag, depending on which spelling variation any given source is using. All of them translate the meaning as small spring or place of the small spring or springs. A related theory is that the name comes from a place called Alezon, meaning Young Spring, a Native American village located along a creek next to the current border west of the town of Sasabee. Though most believe this is unrelated and that Arizona definitely comes from the site near Agua Caliente. A third theory that was briefly proposed is that Arizona is still a Native American word, but means the place of chastisement, with the context saying that it had something to do with the victims being children. However, others point out it's possible someone confused the words for an ever-flowing spring with a similar enough word for a place associated with violence but such was the consensus on the view of Arizona coming from the Odom word for place of the small spring that McClintock ends his chapter on Arizona's name with, quote, all would indicate that little reason exists for further research along this line, end quote. Just a note for any future historians out there, you really shouldn't make statements like that. It's practically inviting fate to prove you wrong. In this case, the man who notably tried to prove McClintock wrong was Donald Garrett, the former chief of interpretation at Tumacocri National Historic Park in southern Arizona. Starting with a paper published in the Journal of Arizona History in 1999, and until his death in 2010, Garrett argued that there never was a place called Arizonac, and that the word Arizona is in Aztec, Spanish, or even Odom. Garrett claimed that an extensive review of all the original documents regarding the 1736 silver find, a total of 186 folios, showed that Arizona is mentioned 37 times and Arizonac not once. Arizonac appears to have come from the title of a map found in the late 19th century, claiming to have been drawn in 1733 by the alcalde or mayor of Sonora, Gabriel de Prudhomme Berton y Mujica. The Prudholm map, as it is known, has more than a few anachronisms and downright errors, according to Garrett, the least of which is that it shows rivers flowing in the wrong direction. But the most glaring error is its title declaring it to show the Real de Arizonac, but the actual marked spot on the map labels it as a rancheria called Arizona. A real usually meant a real de minas, or a mining operation with royal approval. A rancheria is just a collection of houses close to each other. And this is getting deep into the etymological weeds here, but Garrett argues that Arizona was referred to a couple times as a real, but the context shows that it meant district and not a mining operation, because in his telling, the mining didn't happen at Arizona, but at San Antonio de Padua. Also, while rancherias generally refer to a place inhabited by Native Americans, he also found instances where they had Spanish occupants. But getting back to Garrett's theory, He says Arizona is not an Odom word. According to him, during Anza's initial 1736 investigation into the silver mining, he interviewed a group of Odom living nearby who claimed they did not know anything about the silver because they never went to that particular area out of a fear of Apache attacks. Additionally, a list of place names in Sonora from an unpublished 19th century dictionary of the Odom language seems to identify the place as Ta'aka, meaning where the mountains end. So, if Arizona doesn't come from the Odom, where does he suggest it does come from? The answer, he says, is that the word is Basque. The Basque, as you might know, are a distinct ethnic group hailing from the northeast part of the Iberian Peninsula, where Spain and Portugal are, and southwestern France, with a language unrelated to either Spanish or French. While Garrett has been the most vocal modern proponent, The theory that Arizona is a Basque word was first made in the early 1980s by a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. He gave two possible interpretations. The first is that Arizona is a combination of the words Ari, rock, and Ona, good, making the meaning the place of the good rocks. However, even he was skeptical of that interpretation and then proposed, and this is what Garrett eventually latched onto, that it more likely came from the word Aritz, oak, and Ona, good, making Arizona the place of the good oak. More compelling is the fact, according to Gerd, that Aritz, A-R-I-T-Z, for oak, is a modern Basque spelling after attempts to standardize the language. At the time, it would have been spelled A-R-I-Z, making Arizona, the place of the good oak, spelled the same in Ansa's day as our own. Also, if Arizonak really was the original name, it's still consistent with the theory, because in the Basque language, adding a C to the ending only makes it plural. So it would be the place of the good oaks instead of the place of the good oak. Beside the spelling, Garrett also points to a few other supporting facts. The first is a large number of native Basque were part of the Spanish conquista, with many particularly working in finance, presidio management, and, importantly for our story here, mining during this era. Anza himself was Basque. Urrea, his deputy living at Arizona, was born to Basque parents. Roughly a dozen families living in the San Luis area north of the Arizona site are known to have been Basque, and of the 18 known persons to be in the area of Agua Caliente and Arizona when silver was discovered, half of them are Basque. Gerd also points out that there are multiple towns in Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Honduras, Guatemala, and Costa Rica all named Arizona, places where Basque immigrants had settled and where no one would have named something in the Odom language. While this theory has not been conclusively proven or adopted, it certainly is a plausible alternative to the Alishondag etymology. It's interesting to note that historian Thomas Sheridan, in the 2012 revised version of his book, Arizona History, gives a brief recounting of the 1736 silver boom and says matter-of-factly that Arizona comes from the Basque for the good oak trees without even mentioning the Alixondag theory. But whether Arizona actually means the place of the small spring, the place of the good oak, or even large-nosed woman, the question remains, how did this small place in Mexico lend its name to our state? McClintock makes the valid point that it's a natural progression that the name of such an important spot or mistakenly thought to be an important spot, began to refer to a larger and larger area. Sheridan said something similar, adding that the name Arizona and the dreams it induced, you know, silver veins so rich you could scoop bolas off the surface with your bare hands, loomed large in folklore and may have even been on the mind of railroad interests as they pressured President Franklin Pierce in the 1850s to buy the southern part of what is today Arizona. According to another source, early state historian Thomas Farish, when New Mexico petitioned Congress in 1854 to create the territory of Arizona from its western half, it suggested three names. Pimaria, the old Spanish term for the land of the Pima, Gazzonia, for the Gadsden Purchase, or Arizona. The latter was chosen for being the most pleasing to the ear, though that particular petition failed. He also wrote that in 1860, Congress wrote up an act to establish the territory of Algumo, though he could never give a reason for why they came up with that particular name. Charles Poston, known as the father of Arizona for his efforts to get the area territorial status, is often reported of having suggested the name, possibly according to McClintock, because he did believe it was an Aztec word meaning rocky country. However, Poston himself claimed that the first time he ever saw it was when it was suggested by the Attorney General for the Territory of New Mexico, a particularly roguish character named William Claude Jones. However it got there, the name stuck and was officially adopted when President Abraham Lincoln signed the act creating the territory in 1863. Today, there still is a ranch called La Arizona in Sonora, roughly 10 miles southwest of Nogales, the remnant of the original puesta after it had been divided, parceled off, and sold over the centuries. But as it sits on the other side of the border, it's also now outside our purview. Arizona has now left its namesake behind. It's departed on a journey that Anza couldn't have foreseen, as he dispatched letters from his deputy's house, which was nestled in a quiet spot, either near some small springs or sitting in the shade of a good growth of oak trees. Join me next time as we discuss more about La Zona Arida that would one day become Arizona, and discover why exactly we have so many majestic holes in the ground. Special thanks go out this week to the Arizona Historical Society for Research Assistance, Also, shout out to my good friend Matt Taylor for the design of the podcast cover art. And finally, thanks to all of you for joining me today and going forward. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.